So uh, my, my wife and I were just talking uh, yesterday, I think it was, um, and she was mentioning how uh, surprised she was when she first started coming to Grace Community Church because uh, when it came Christmas time, there wasn't always a Christmas message. Um, there sometimes is, but sometimes isn't. And of course, this morning in the main service, there wasn't a Christmas message, but there isn't Sojourners today. Um, but it's some, something of a non-traditional Christmas message. But it's an appropriate Christmas message for sojourners uh, because it is uh, an Old Testament Christmas message. So what we're going to do is look at Christmas in the Old Testament. It's traditional for Christians to read the Christmas story in Matthew or Luke at this time of year, and for non-Christians to do so as well. How many millions of youngsters heard Linus recited on national television, right? Um, But bereft of context, it's a pleasant story and easily secularized, easily interpreted as a Hallmark Channel parable teaching peace and goodwill and the notion that there's enough good in everyone that God is favorably disposed toward all of us. Satan has made great sport of making sure that the wrong emphasis is put on the story, especially by mixing in jolly mythical characters who urge people to try to be on the good list, which is just what Satan wants. He wants everybody to think that you just have to be good, and that'll do it. Uh, Satan's perversely clever Christmas cluttering allows the vast majority of people who are on their way to hell to avoid the reality and implications of the incarnation of Jesus the Messiah. It's the birth of Jesus, but why does that matter? That's the issue. It's the birth of Jesus, but why does that matter? Today we're going to try a non-traditional look at Christmas to connect the Christmas dots found throughout the Bible in hopes of gaining a new appreciation for the Matthew and Luke accounts and for the eternal plan of our Savior God. As good sojourners, we will concentrate on Christmas in the Old Testament. Now, if I asked, if we did a poll and I asked you what's your favorite Christmas passage in the Bible, I can pretty much guarantee that I would be the only one who would pick the passage that I'm giving. And that is Isaiah 59. So turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah 59, and we will start there. And then we're going to actually take a little road trip through the Old Testament uh, and look at various elements of the Christmas story as they're laid out in the Old Testament. This is my favorite Christmas passage, Isaiah 59. Look at the first two verses. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, neither is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But here's the key, verse 2, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hid his face from you so that he does not hear. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. This is the fundamental problem of mankind. This is mankind's problem. Our sins have separated us from God. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, were separated from God. And so are we. And in fact, verse 10 of Isaiah 59 says, we grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in the twilight. Among those who are vigorous, we are like dead men. Some of you will realize that that sounds familiar to Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. So where's the Christmas message, Dr. Fraser? Uh, Verses 10 to 13 give us the need for Christmas. Verse 2 gave us mankind's problem. Verses 10 to 13, the need for Christmas. We're dead men. We are separated from God. There's a a group, uh, 33 Miles, who have a song that I have uh, adopted now as a favorite. Uh, And the song says, 
I could not come to you, so you came to me. And that's what Christmas is all about. We could not go to God. We were separated because of our sins. We were dead. And so God came to us. And that brings us to verse 16 of Isaiah 59. And God saw that there was no man, that is, to intercede or to solve this problem, and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him. His own arm brought salvation to him. This is the purpose of Christmas. The purpose of Christmas is for God to bring salvation. Only God could solve this crisis, this problem, this separation, this deadness on our part. And so his own arm brought salvation to him, and that's what, uh, the, what Christmas is really ultimately all about. Peter, in 1 Peter 3, in verse 18, says this, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. That he might bring us to God. So Christmas becomes the solution to mankind's unsolvable problem. So let's see what Christmas is really all about, Charlie Brown. And we're going to go run, run through the Old Testament and look at the story as it unfolds. Now, chronologically, the first book written in the Bible was Job. And you're probably all familiar, you probably go to Job each Christmas, right? <laughs> well, if you're following along with me, go to Job this Christmas. The first book that was written, the first message from God to man, was Job. And in Job chapter 19, verse 25, Job says, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. So Job says, look, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he will take his stand on the earth. This is the first mention of the incarnation. The Redeemer will come to the earth and stand on the earth. Now, if you don't start your Christmas study in Job, you probably started in Genesis. So let's go there. And we'll run through sort of the traditional order of the Bible. Genesis 3 and verse 15, we have the first Christmas message if we're going through the way that the book is laid out. Genesis 3.15, when God is speaking to the serpent after the fall, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, he will bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So, a human will crush Satan. That's what he's saying here. He will bruise you. Here it means crush. He will crush you on the head. And Satan will only crush him on the heel. A human will do this, and that human, we learn right here, is the seed of the woman, her seed. Now, that's not the norm. Some of you have taken biology class down through the years, or your parents yourselves, and you had doctors explain things to you, or you had parents who explained things to you when you were 12 or 10 or something. And it's not the woman who has the seed. It is the man. And so this is a very unusual statement between your seed and her seed. And this tells us something about these, this coming 
redeemer who will take his stand on the earth to solve mankind's problem, and it tells us that there's going to be a virgin birth. Or else he's not going to be born, he's just going to show, show up. But if he's going to be born, which he has to be because it's a seed, then it's going to be a virgin birth. And so we have the hint of this right off the bat. Um, and this is where the Christmas story begins, with the virgin birth. The virgin birth is not just an amazing thing, and it's not just something for people to go, wow, that's strange. It is an integral part of this whole thing. It has to do with who this person is going to be and his sinlessness. Now, go on in, in Genesis to chapter 22. Chapter 22. We're all familiar from our flannel graph days uh, with Abraham going to offer Isaac, right, as a sacrifice. And he's about to plunge the knife into uh, Isaac, and an angel comes and stops him. Um, but right before that, look at verse 7. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, this is Genesis chapter 22, verse 7. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? In verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb, my son. God will provide for himself. God will provide salvation for himself. The same thing that Isaiah 59, 16 says. It echoes Isaiah 59, 16. The one who is coming will be a sacrificial lamb. That's what Isaiah 53, 7 through 10 is all about. Uh, and that's what the lamb is all about in the book of Revelation at the end of, of things. So this one who is coming, the seed of a woman, is uh, going to be a sacrifice, and God is providing it for himself. Fortunately, it's not up to us, or it wouldn't happen. Now move to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Go forward a few books to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Here Moses prophesied Christmas. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. This is a prophecy of the Messiah. The Messiah, the Christ of Christmas. You know, we talk about Christmas with trees and snow and logs on the fire, and sleighs, and whatnot, all of that has absolutely zero to do with Christmas. It's nice to celebrate Wintermas, and I think that's fine. I celebrate Wintermas. I enjoy some of the Wintermas songs and whatnot. But it's important to separate them out from Christmas. Christmas is, the word means celebration of Christ. Celebration of Christ. Not celebration of winter, not celebration of Satan Claus. It is celebration of Christ. And so here he is, he is prophesying that, it, that the Christ will come, a prophet. Uh, and I could give you a number of ways in which, um, and Will Varner taught us on this very well, uh, about uh, a number of ways in which he, Christ is like Moses that Moses is talking about where he says, I will raise up, God will raise up a prophet like me from among you, but we don't have time for that today. Um, so then in, verse, in uh, Deuteronomy 32, moving forward, Deuteronomy 32 and verse 43, in, his, in Moses' song at the end of his life, the song of Moses, Part of it says in verse 43, Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries. He will atone 
for his land and his people. God will atone for the people's sins. Now, the people were very familiar with the sacrificial system that they were involved in, right? And they had to do atonement. And the chief priest had to do atonement. And they had to bring stuff to do atonement. But Moses in his song says, God will atone for his people's sins. And they brought a lot of lambs and so forth for the atonement. But remember what Abraham told Isaac. God will provide the ultimate lamb. So Abraham, Isaiah, Moses, all point to the ultimate meaning of Christmas. Moving on, go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2. First Samuel chapter 2. And we look at the prayer of Hannah when she celebrated the birth of Samuel. And look what she says in verse 10, which is about the Messiah once again. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. This is the passage that Zacharias references in Luke 1.69. The horn of his anointed. Um, and we will, well, I'll just read it to you really quick. Luke 1.69. Zacharias, who is filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesying at this point, says, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. A horn of salvation for us. And, this, and he quotes this passage in 1 Samuel chapter 2. The Christ is coming, says Hannah in her prayer. Then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we have one of the clearest passages, Old Testament prophecies regarding this coming Christ. Remember now, Christ means Messiah. It is not Jesus' last name. Okay? It means Messiah. It means Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Christ. And so these are prophecies of the Christ, the Messiah, who will be Jesus. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, in verses 12 to 16, we have prophecy concerning this coming Messiah. And what we learn here is, uh, let's just read it quickly. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you. I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Look at verse 15. By loving kindness, my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, forever here in the Hebrew means forever. <laughs> that means without end. And so this Christ is coming and is going to have a throne which is established forever. The angel Gabriel says something similar to Mary again in Luke chapter 1 and verses 32 and 33. Gabriel, when he tells Mary, don't be afraid, Verse 31 says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall name him Jesus. Verse 32, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, like 2 Samuel 7 says, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. So this is a connection Gabriel explicitly connects 2 Samuel 7 with Mary's child. 
that this is the one that was talked about before. And the writer of Hebrews quotes this in Hebrews 1.5 as well. All right. Now let's shift gears for a moment and talk about, um, perhaps you're familiar, I hope not, but you probably are, Perhaps you're familiar with certain animated features or Hallmark movies about Christmas almost being canceled, right? In the Hallmark movies, it's, it's because, you know, somebody split up or because they ran out of money or, or some Grinch decided to shut down the town celebration or whatever. And in the animated stuff, there's so much snow that Satan Claus can't get his, through the storm so he had to enlist the help of a deformed reindeer. <laughs> the Bible speaks of Christmas almost not coming. But Satan has schemes that are not snowstorms. They're a little more effective, or at least he thinks so. So uh, I did actually did a whole message, uh, I don't know, years ago, on preventing the Messiah and going through the Bible and showing all the times that Satan tried to prevent the Messiah from coming. And then once the Messiah came, when he tried to corrupt him and so on, we're not going to redo that whole message. But I just I want to point out uh, three things, three passages quickly, of Satan trying to prevent Christmas from coming. Because uh, guess what? Satan knows the real meaning of Christmas. He knows the real meaning of Christmas. And in order to stop it, he didn't cut down trees, and he didn't provide snowstorms. He did other things. Look with me at uh, 1 Kings 1. 1 Kings 1. Here's Satan's first attempt to prevent Christmas from happening. In 1 Kings 1.5... And to get this whole story, you'd have to get a message on 1 Kings, because I don't have time for it today. But just to lay it out, in 1 Kings 1.5, Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. So he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen with 50 men to run before him, and so on and so forth. So Adonijah is actually the oldest son of David at this point, not Solomon. Solomon is the promised line. Solomon is the one that is the immediate response on 2 Samuel 7. Okay, He's the one that's in the short run of fulfilling the prophecy of 2 Samuel 7, which eventually is to the Messiah. It's, the line is to go through Solomon. So Satan tries to keep it from happening by perverting the royal line of succession. And Adonijah, who's the oldest son, which normally that would be the one the line would go through, right? But we're all familiar in sojourners, going all the way back into Genesis of times when God had second sons jump first sons, right? And so, uh, in this case, Solomon is, is going to be the, the, the proper line, but Satan tries to install Adonijah as king in order to break that and, and prevent the Messiah from coming, because he wouldn't have kingly credentials, which he needed to have. So uh, Adonijah decides he's going to be king, and he actually enlists some leaders of the military and some priests, and they declare him king. This is not a, just a casual thing. They declare him king. The military and the priests proclaimed Adonijah king uh, in this attempt to pervert the royal line of succession and prevent Jesus from having kingly credentials. Then it, got, it gets blocked, it gets stopped, but then go to chapter 2 of 1 Kings and verse 22, and Adonijah is not done yet, neither is Satan. So they block the initial attempt, and then Adonijah says, hey, how about, you know, I, okay, I'm disappointed, I didn't get the throne, Solomon gets it, I get it, he's the, he's the king. How about if you let me marry this young woman, Abishag? That's in verse 22 of 1 Kings 2. Then King Solomon answered and said to his mother, Why are you asking Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him also the kingdom, for he is my older brother, even for him, for Abiathar the priest, and for Joab the son of Zeruiah. All right, 
So here's the deal. It's a long story. Make a long story short. David was really old. He was getting cold at night. They uh, took a young woman and had her sleep with David. No, they didn't have sex. It wasn't that. Just was to sleep with him to keep him warm. This was a cultural thing. But she did sleep with the king. So Adonijah says, hey, I didn't get it the other way. How about if I marry her, I am marrying the woman who slept with the king, and, and culturally that makes me the king. Now Solomon's known for what? Wisdom. Solomon says, why are you asking this? Well, you might as well give him the kingdom. He gets it. It's a trick. It's a ploy. And it doesn't happen. So this is Satan's attempt to pervert the royal line to prevent the Messiah from coming. Coming. Go to 2 Kings, and we get the second attempt by Satan to prevent the royal line. That is, to prevent Christmas. There is no Christmas without Christ. There is no Christ without a Messiah. There is no Messiah without a king. Okay, get the, the, the flow here. So another attempt to prevent it is in 2 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she rose and destroyed all the royal offspring. But not really. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Azahiah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons who were being put to death and placed him in his nurse in the bedroom. So they hid him from Athaliah, and he was not put to death. So Satan tried to pervert the kingly line. It didn't work. So now he tries to wipe out the kingly line. Athaliah intended to kill the entire kingly line, but God saved Joash to preserve the kingly line. Now, again, without the Christ, you don't have Christmas. You can still have Wintermas, you can still have Santamas, but not Christmas, right? Then jump to Esther, the book of Esther. We're familiar with this story. So Satan tries to pervert the royal line, then he tries to wipe out the royal line, and then, just to make sure he covers all the bases, he tries to wipe out every Jew. In Esther chapter 3, it's a long story, but just to cut to the chase, look at verse 13 of chapter 3. Esther 3, 13. And letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews both young and old, women and children. Then jump to chapter 9, verse 1. So that's his next ploy. But look at chapter 9, verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, on the thirteenth day, when the king's commanded edict were about to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary, so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. And you should read the book of Esther to see how that happened. But God turns it around, and the guy who is trying to kill all the Jews is the one who gets killed. And so Satan is trying to wipe out the Jews, not just because he hates Jews, but because he wants to prevent the Christ, to prevent the birth of the Christ. Satan gets progressively more desperate from subtle to sledgehammer, right? Let's pervert the kingly line. No, okay, then let's wipe out the kingly line. No, okay, let's wipe out all Jews. Because he knows what Christmas is all about. He knows what Christmas is all about. And so he tries to prevent it. All right, let's go to happier stuff. Go to Isaiah chapter 7. Here's one of the best-known Christmas passages in the Old Testament. Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name 
Emmanuel. Now, Isaiah repeats the prophecy of the virgin birth that we saw in Genesis 3.15, but he gives us new, new information. What is it? He stipulates it will be a son. Okay? Genesis 3.15 didn't tell us it would be a son, but Isaiah does. He will be a son. The woman's seed will be a son. And in the same verse... He says this extraordinary son will be God. She will call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. So this extraordinary son, born to a virgin, the woman's seed, will be God with us. God among us. God present with us. In chapter 9, We're pretty familiar with this uh, because of Handel. Handel helps us get a handle on this. In chapter 9 of Isaiah, verse 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government, or of peace, on the throne of David, and over his kingdom. Does this all sound familiar? It should. Takes us back again to 2 Samuel 7. So, but notice what he says here. His name will be called, oh yeah, Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace. Okay, fine. That's the way most people see it or hear it when they listen to Handel's Messiah. A wonderful counselor, prince of peace. What are they skipping? Mighty God, eternal father. It's amazing how... Why, did it, why does this get no attention? It's amazing how people can skip over things they don't want to hear. I'm going to draw a parallel here. Please don't think I'm equating it with the Bible. It's just a parallel. We used to be able to do this in the old days, so I'm hoping you're smart enough to do this. So a parallel. In Mein Kampf, <laughs> Hitler laid out exactly what he was going to do to the Jews in great detail. I'm going to kill them all. And nobody believed it. They couldn't, they just, they didn't believe it. And the consequences were what we know of as World War II and the Holocaust. Well, here, every year this is sung in the Messiah, mighty God, eternal Father, and nobody makes the connection that, wait a minute, this guy we're talking about is actually God, eternal Father. People ignore what they don't want to believe. It's say, hey, the music is great, but... Whatever. And also, when it says he's Prince of Peace in verse 6, this is talking about peace with God. Peace between man and God. This is back to Isaiah 59, 16. He is, he through this Messiah, this Christ of Christmas, will heal the separation between God and man and bring peace between man and God. How do I know that? Luke, in the traditional passage, another thing that is overlooked all the time. I'm going to do a message sometime on things that are overlooked in the Bible. Luke 2, 14. We're all familiar with this, right? It's part of the traditional story, so we could quote it. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. Right? That's the way it's always quoted. And peace, goodwill toward men. That is not what it says. Glory to God in the highest, on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. It's not a generic peace. It's not goodwill for all. It is those with whom God is pleased. Because he is now, through this Christ, crossing 
the barrier healing the rift between God and men. He, is, he will be the peace to restore the connection between God and men that Isaiah 59.2 talked about, the separation there. All right, back to Isaiah 9, verse 7. It also, if you notice, puts him on the throne of David. On the throne of David, like 2 Samuel 7. And consequently, <laughs> I should have left it alone. You're doing a good job. Um, Consequently, you end up with passages like Luke 132, 2.4, and 2.11 dealing with the city of David. Why was it important for him to be born in the city of David? Because he is to be David's descendant in order to have the kingly credentials of the Christ, the Messiah. Not just an average guy, but the Christ. He comes from the line of David, the throne. He sits on the throne of David, Isaiah tells us. And notice what the end of verse 7 says, which is generally not looked at either. Look at the last line of verse 7 of Isaiah 9. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That's 59.16. God will establish salvation. God is doing the work. He is the one who will accomplish this. Bringing the Christ. Putting him on the throne of David. Go to chapter 11 of Isaiah. Isaiah is replete, some of you know, with things concerning the Christ of Christmas. Uh, I, in our Bible study, I taught through the whole Bible, a book per lesson, 66 lessons. And I had a rule. I had to do every book in one lesson, including Psalms. I did Psalms in one lesson. Um, but except I broke the rule for two things. I had to break the rule for Isaiah because each lesson was an overview of the book and then, what does this teach us about Christ? And with Isaiah, I could not do that in one message. So I did a, what the overview of Isaiah, and then I did a whole message on what Isaiah says about Christ. Because there's so much there. So I made up for it by combining 2nd and 3rd John into one message. So it's still 66. <laughs> now, so Isaiah has a lot to say, and we're just just skimming off the top, but look at chapter 11, verse 1. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. This introduces uh, two things. First of all, it tells us about his descent from David, from the stem of Jesse, who was David's father, and that he will be a branch he will be a branch. Some of you remember that Dr. Varner used to refer to him as the branch man. He's the branch man. Um, and so that tells us more about him. Something about a branch. Okay, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later. All right. Before we go to the next passage, it's quiz time. What's the one Christmas prophecy that is present in all four Gospels, including the Gospel that doesn't have a Christmas account? Turn to Isaiah 40, chapter 3. John, of course, doesn't have a traditional Christmas account, uh, you know, with the wise men and that kind of stuff, uh, but he does talk about the birth of Christ and so forth, uh, but Mark doesn't at all. So, but he still has this prophecy. Isaiah ch uh, chapter 40, verse 3. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make, make smooth in the desert 
a highway for our God. This is the prophecy of the herald of Christmas, H-E-R-A-L-D. The herald of Christmas, the one, the announcer, the one who announces his coming, which is, of course, John the Baptist, who clears the way for the coming of the Lord. And by the way here, it says, clear the way for the Lord. If you're looking at the Legacy Standard Bible, it says Yahweh for the Lord, and the other is when it says our God, that's Elohim. So he clears the way for Yahweh and Elohim, two terms for God. Which again tells us that this Christ, that the forerunner, the herald John the Baptist is introducing, is God. This Christ, the Messiah, is Yahweh. He identifies the Christ of Christmas as God. Go to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 24 to 28. And my servant David will be king over them. This is a messianic passage. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. So we learn that this Christ of Christmas will be a great shepherd. Sound familiar? From, other, from New Testament passages. Then go on. He, he says, um, in verse 25, And they shall live on the land that I gave to Jacob my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons, and their sons' sons forever. And David my servant will be their prince forever. And... I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it will be an everlasting covenant. So this Christ of Christmas will be a great shepherd. He will be on the throne of David forever, and he will be the initiator of a new covenant. All familiar stuff to people who know the Bible. Daniel 7 Next book of the Bible, Daniel. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And verse 14, and to him was given dominion, glory, and and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. So Daniel sees a kingly son of man, which, of course, was Jesus' favorite name for himself. That was the way he identified himself more than any other title, because it highlights his first coming when he comes in the incarnation. And he will have a kingdom, an everlasting dominion, which will not end. Chapter 9 of Daniel. Neil mentioned a couple of these things this morning. I asked him to just introduce this. Maybe not. It's because Scots think alike, I think. Um, Daniel 9... Verse 25 tells us when this Christmas will occur. And, of course, it says December 25th. That's why it's verse 25. That's as close as it gets to being December 25th. 925, so you're to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince... Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So this tells us, or told them, when the Messiah would come. Now, the wise men likely came from Babylon, 
where Daniel headed up the wise men and were likely following his teaching. This is why they were looking for the king of the Jews. This is, they knew when to be looking for the coming Messiah, the king of the Jews. They'd been watching the calendar. I can see him crossing off days on the calendar for 69 years. Actually, more than that. But anyway, they had been watching the calendar and saw the glory of the angels light up the sky. And that's why when they get there, they say, where is the king of the Jews? Because they're expecting him. Daniel told them when he was coming. Go to Micah. Micah 5.2. So they knew when he was coming. How did they know where to go to look for him? Other than seeing the light of the angel in the sky, the glory of the angels. Micah 5.2. But as for you, Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah from you, One will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Micah tells us that Christmas, the coming of the Christ, will take place in Bethlehem. And it was so clear that even the scribes and the priests could tell Herod when he asked them. Herod said, where is this? king supposed to come in the traditional story in Matthew 2 and verse 6. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, Matthew 2 verses 5 and 6, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, For out of you shall come forth the ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It was not a mystery, not a surprise. This is where he had to come, and and of course where he did come. And Micah 5.2 also tells us that the Christ of Christmas is God. Notice what he says. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Or his appearances are from long ago, from days of old, from eternity. Only God is eternal. We talk about ourselves being eternal. I've talked about this before. I'm sorry, it's just a pet peeve of mine. We talk about ourselves as having eternal life. So it's actually sempaternal. Only God is eternal. We are sempaternal. Sempaternal means you have a starting point and then you have no end. Eternal means you have no starting point and no end. Only God is eternal. And by saying that this one is from the days of eternity, he is God. And he also, in verse 4, he will arise and shepherd his flock. He will be the shepherd that we talked about before. And verse 5, this one will be our peace. Our peace. This one will be our peace. The one who brings peace between God and men. Then we turn to our favorite book in the Bible, Zechariah. It's become our favorite book in the Bible over the last few months. Zechariah chapter 6, and we've talked about this, but it's important to note. Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, Then say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will bear the honor and sit on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace will be between the two offices. Zechariah tells us that this Christ of Christmas will be a branch man and will sit on the throne as well as being priest. That wasn't supposed to happen, right? 
in normal life in, in Israel. Priest and king were separate offices. But this branch man, this Messiah, is going to be both king and priest. And it's perhaps the significance of the gifts that are given. In Matthew 2, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The gold would be a gift for the king, as uh, Neil mentioned. The frankincense would be the gift for a priest. And the myrrh, many would say, refers to the sacrifice, because myrrh was the spice that they used on dead bodies. Um, But be that as it may, priest and king. And gives us a hint as to where the Christ of Christmas would live. Netzer is the word for branch in Hebrew, and that's the word that Nazareth comes from. The branch man from branch town. So, let's turn to the last voice of the Old Testament, the Italian prophet Malachi. I'm sorry, I borrowed that from Will Varner too. And our local Italians don't appreciate it. But anyway, Malachi, turn to Malachi chapter 3, the last voice of the Old Testament. He prophesies the coming of the next prophet, the herald of the coming of Christ. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The messenger of the covenant, the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 6. The last verse of the Old Testament. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children of their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. That's pleasant. But he will restore the hearts. So the fulfillment of these prophecies identifies Jesus as the Christ of Old Testament prophecy. And John the Baptist is the herald of that. Now, if we had five more minutes, I would do some reverse engineering. I'm going to take three minutes and do it fast. We'll just put it up on the screen. Oops. All right. Matthew 1, 18 to 20. There is no man in the conception. Joseph takes her before they had come together. Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. That points us back to Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. Matthew 1.21 She'll bear a son, you'll call his name Jesus, for as he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means Jehovah saves. That's what Isaiah 59, 16 said would happen. Jehovah would save. Matthew 1, 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. This is a direct quote from Isaiah 7, 14. Why is his name Jesus and not Emmanuel? How was he Emmanuel? Because Emmanuel means God with us. Jesus is Jehovah saves. He is God with us. He does save his people from their sins. Matthew 2.2 2, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Again, the Magi taught Daniel's teaching. They knew when and where in Daniel 9.25. Matthew 2.11, they came in the house and presented their gifts to him of gold and frankincense and myrrh, referring to Zechariah 6.12 and 13, that he would be both priest and king. 
They knew what to give. They didn't have to buy a gift card. They knew what the appropriate gift was. Matthew 2.23, he came and resided in a city called Nazareth, or Netzerat, what was spoken of through the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. And what, did, what are those prophecies? 1 Samuel 11.1, 1, Jeremiah 23.5, Zechariah 3.8, that talk about that. Luke 1.26, Luke 1.26, Nazareth. There are numerous branch prophecies that we talked about. Luke 1.27, she will be a virgin. You'll be born to a virgin and of the house of David. In 127, to a virgin engaged to a man who was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. 131 and 221, Jesus will be his name, Jehovah saves. 132 and 33, he will be great. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign on the, over the house of Jacob forever. No end to his kingdom. 2.7, an amazing phrase. I'm a phraser, I pay attention to these things. 2.7, she gave birth to her firstborn son. Very unusual. Her firstborn son. Son, a clear reference again to being her seed. Luke 2.11, city of David, Bethlehem. Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest and on earth. I put this one out because this is the solution to Isaiah 59.16. We come full circle. 2.14, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Peace between God and men is restored. The very thing that God said he would do in Isaiah 59.16. This is the result of justification that God accomplished through the work of the Christ of Christmas. And it's for those with whom he is pleased, for those who would be saved. The world is enamored with the adorable baby of Christmas, the one whose last name is Christ. They're not so interested in the authoritative man the baby grew into, the one whose position is the Christ. The word Christmas means celebration of the Christ. It is not a baby shower. Christmas is ultimately about God's plan of salvation to save spiritually dead people who are separated from Him. The obscured truth is that Christmas was the means by which God Himself, God incarnate, provided salvation that man was helpless to achieve. We could not go to Him. He had to come to us. That's Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. Father, we are just overwhelmed by the prophecies hundreds of years before, but more important than being overwhelmed by the prophecies, Father, we're overwhelmed by your plan of salvation for us, to save us who were dead in our sins, to save us. We all know how bad we are, and yet, Father, you reached out and accomplished salvation for us through your Son, the Christ of Christmas. And so, Father, as we move into this last week before this official celebration of Christmas, I just pray, Father, that we would constantly be celebrating Christmas, that we would constantly be celebrating 
the coming of your Son, the Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. And Father, we thank you for um, this tremendous plan and your love for us that caused it to happen. We give you the praise. Amen.